0: Okay, the, I guess the title of this class is Preparing for the Kingdom, um, which in essence is the events of the second advent that lead into the kingdom or give birth to the kingdom. And so that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, last week we began with an introduction into some of, the, uh, some of the truths, but if you're preparing for the kingdom, you've got to believe that there is coming a kingdom. And when we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about a literal time when Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ comes as king of Israel to fulfill the promises and prophecies to Israel that there would be a time in Israel in the land of Canaan where the king, the descendant of David would sit on the throne and Israel would be having experienced a time of total blessing and righteousness. So I want to read one more passage. We read several passages last week. I want to read one more passage uh, that deals with this in a different... You could go to so many books in the Old Testament and talk about this, uh, but I want to read that uh, one more passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Speaking of the time of this restoration and renewal of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 36 verse 22. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-two. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Okay, so that is a promise in Ezekiel right before Ezekiel goes into the next section of the last uh, several chapters of the book of Ezekiel talking about the Millennial Kingdom, talking about the Millennial River, the Millennial uh, uh, Temple, and all the things that's going to be put in place for that time of the thousand-year judgment. Now, just as a quick review of where we kind of went last week just a little bit, is in our uh, sharing about how we interpret Scripture and the rules of interpretation and being careful of that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read where it says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of a matter of one's own own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God so when we're talking about God's special revelation which he gave to his prophets in the Old Testament and then he spoke through Jesus Christ according to Hebrews chapter one verse one he spoke to Jesus Christ when he came on the scene and then Jesus spoke to his apostles and they in turn wrote down the New Testament scriptures so you have the Bible complete of God's revelation that he intended for us until he comes again at the second advent. So until the second advent comes, the second coming of Christ, we have the completed word of God, and that's all the revelation that we'll have until Christ comes again. Okay? So that's what we have. And every part of the, the revelation that we have from Genesis Revelation fits into the narrative of God's purpose and God's plan, and it all fits you compare Scripture with Scripture to make sure you understand the fullness of God's Word, and you don't take things out of the context in which they're given. You re, it, it, he spoke at various times specifically to various people, and the, the, the words that he spoke to those people at that time are to be taken in the common, the normal sense that he's given it, and you're, you're to, unless it's given to you, to see it as some as symbolic or allegory, it is to be taken literally to be true. And he gives some... some uh, last week, <clears throat> we read that passage in Matthew 1 when the apostles were in the upper room after, after Jesus had ascended, and they were talking about having another apostle appointed. Um, and so, um, I mean, that was in Acts chapter 1. Um, and it, it was talking about them needing to appoint... Another disciple to replace Judas. And um, Peter made the, makes the mention there that it was prophesied in the Old Testament and therefore it had to be fulfilled. So he says there <clears throat> in verse 16 of Acts 1, he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, the point he's making there. <clears throat> is that anything that was prophesied in the Old Testament by a true prophet of God had to be fulfilled. In other words, you couldn't have a prophet of God that didn't speak something that came true. If you, That was the test of a prophet. What he spoke had to come true. And so anything that's prophesied and recorded in the Old Testament scriptures has to come to pass. Another example of that is in Matthew 26 when uh, Jesus is before uh, being tried, or when he was arrested, um, when he was adre- he was arrested, and Peter cut off the ear of the of the officer of the court. It says in verse 52 of Matthew 26, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put to my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And again, he's saying that because it was written in Scripture, it has to be fulfilled. So every prophecy in the Old Testament has to be fulfilled. Now, whatever it was meant in the Old Testament to be is the way it will be. And even some of the the things that were written in the Old Testament we didn't understand to be that way are going to be that way and additionally. Just like when it says, out of Egypt I call my son, knowing that he called Israel his people and he brought them out of Egypt, but he was literally speaking of Jesus being brought up out of Egypt after Herod tried to kill those people. So a couple other words of, of warning or words of commendation. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it's an interesting text because it comes after Peter's talking about being reminded of the scoffers in the last days that will be mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now these are mockers mocking in the fact that Jesus, that there's going to be a judgment coming. The second advent is going to bring in a judgment of the world, and they're mocking that saying, everything has Continued as it was from the beginning. And it says they, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and then the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the water at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So he talks about the judgment of the flood that it escapes their attention, that God has already judged the earth once with a flood. But the present heavens and earth are, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of, holy, of ungodly men. So he's talking about there's coming a judgment. No matter what they believe, it's coming a judgment because it's been promised. It's been prophesied, This coming a judgment. So but then he goes down and he talks about the new heaven, new earth. The day of the Lord becomes the evening night and the heavens will pass away with a roar. But he goes on down there to verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved, since we look for all these things, talking about the judgment to come, the, the, the day of the Lord, the dissolving of this earth, and a new heaven and new earth, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So here Peter is mentioning that Paul wrote in his epistles about all these things concerning the day of the Lord, the coming judgment, and, and the eternal order. And so what Paul wrote, he's saying, don't distort and don't change the scriptures like some have and be guilty of not understanding the revelation and the truth of that revelation. And then the final passage about warning about scripture is in Revelation 22. And people, I think, take this get this a little bit out of context. But it says, anyway, in verse 18 of Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, the the book he's talking about is the book of the book of Revelation. And he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So in the context He's writing about, he's finishing up his, his writing of the book of Revelation. It is going in great detail about the time of judgment that's coming up on the earth, the tribulation time, the seven years when God's going to pour out his wrath upon this earth. And basically what he's saying is anyone living at the time of that happening that takes this prophecy and disregards it or makes up something else about it than it is true, they're going to go through the plagues of the book. And if anybody continues to deny or or distort or take away from the truth of this book, which means they're taken away from the revelation of Jesus Christ that he is the King coming, and they have, by analogy, accepted the, the, the deception of the Antichrist, they can't be saved. So basically, don't take this particular passage... To, to mean something for you today, but there is a warning that at any time God speaks through his word, you don't change what God said and you don't add to it. But this particular warning is for the people that live at the time of this judgment, okay? Question. So, so what is the, what is on the flip side, what is the penalty today for people that take um, and add and subtract? <laughs> well, if people are heretics, and they take away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ or anything about the understanding of the gospel, they're giving evidence that they are not born again, and therefore they are part of those that are going to not have a place in the eternal order with God. So it demonstrates who they are. So the warning is don't heed false teachers, and certainly a warning against anyone who is a false teacher, you're... Destiny is eternal fire, eternal hell. So that's clear. But but the the overall thing is to be careful that you interpret Scripture correctly and properly, not having an agenda of your own interpretation to take away from what's been obviously said. How did they tear out false prophecies? In in other words, if you made a prophecy and you're saying, well, it had to have come true in order, but the predictions were made so far out, how did you said this, and they said, and it will be coming, but then they, they died even before it gets, how did, okay. how they able to those things? Okay, the question is, how do you know a true prophet from a false prophet if their prophecies are in the, in the future? Well, basically, the prophets of God not only prophesied way in the future, they had things to say about God now, and therefore their record had been established that they were true prophets and therefore, since their records has been established, they're true prophets, then you can hold on. And the fact that they have been used in the writing of Scripture and their prophecies are in Scripture means that God has accepted them as true prophets, and therefore their words are to be honored and held as true prophets and Scripture that God the Spirit has given them. So if it's recorded in Scripture, it is, it is the Holy Spirit that gave them the words to say so that you know that these are Refer back to give okay. credi- so credibility I mean, then. Refer back to them. Yes. There. Okay. All right. So um, we got to go fast. Then I'll. G- <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to have Sunday school for the next two weeks. Uh, at least we won't have this class the next two weeks. Uh, next week is the conference, and there won't be a Sunday school. And I'm going to be out of town the 24th, and Daryl's going to teach Sunday school, but not on this. He'll teach another lesson. Okay. But on the 1st of October, we're going to start into the beginning chapter of the book that we're writing about the events of the second advent, the events that lead up to the kingdom age. Okay, so we'll deal with that, hopefully, if we get through the introduction today, we'll get to there starting on October the 1st. So hopefully that'll work uh, if we get through today. But to lay the foundation again for the kingdom age and believing in the kingdom and understanding the the events that's going to take place, I think we have to understand the idea of God's covenant and God's covenants, okay? Especially the, the covenants that God has with Israel. Because you've got to understand there's a distinct difference between the people of Israel and the church. They're not the same, even though we're, we're the people of God, they were the people of God, it's not the same. So you've got to make sure that you understand it. So I want to start out by giving you an understanding, or hopefully give an understanding, of what I'm calling, or what is called in the Bible, the eternal covenant. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 13... It mentions this eternal covenant in verse 20 at the end of the book of Hebrews. In verse 20 of of Hebrews 13, it says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead this great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So here he mentions the eternal covenant of the blood of Jesus. Now if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, you get this understanding of what he is talking about as he relates to the, what would happen before the foundation of the world in God's purpose and plan for the coming of the Lamb of God. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing, and he says in verse 15, "...but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address this Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work... Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished, spotless the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown or foreordained before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the eternal covenant was enacted prior to the foundation of the world when the Godhead got together and determined that there was going to be a creation of humanity, there was going to be a created world, and that man was going to fall, and that man would need a redeemer to redeem him back to God so that God would have the enjoyment of his created beings or his created humans Throughout eternity, but they had to be saved. They had to be born again. They had to be delivered from this penalty of sin that was coming up on the world. And so before the foundation of the world, before there was the problem with sin, God had already had the remedy or the solution for sin in the fact that the Godhead agreed that the second person of the Godhead would become a man and would die as their substitute and as their identifying with their sin so that they could identify with his righteousness And therefore, he was the lamb that was ordained before the foundation of the world. So the eternal covenant is from Adam to the last person in the kingdom age, everyone that God has chosen or purposed to be saved and part of this redemptive work of Christ was was part of this eternal covenant. So everyone from Adam to the last person has been saved according to the blood of Christ. And this eternal covenant was that, that anyone that is going to be in, in God's eternal order... In God's eternal new heaven and new earth, in a glorified state, would be a part of this covenantal work of God, the eternal covenant. So when we're talking about eternal salvation for everybody, we're talking about the eternal covenant of God that Jesus is talking about. And I think this is what Jesus was saying, and we'll get to that in a few minutes when we get into the new covenant. When, I think what Jesus was saying was, this is the new covenant of my blood speaking of the eternal covenant and the eternal salvation of sin that would be applied to Israel at the time of the fulfillment of the Jeremiah 31 covenant. Okay? But we'll get into that in just a minute. So here we have the eternal covenant that begins in the garden and goes all the way through the Bible to the end, and everyone is saved in response to or in accordance to the eternal covenant. So it begins in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and after they had eaten of the fruit, in verse 13, the Lord God said to Eve, the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat and all the days of your life. I will put in me between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here he's talking about This seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman is contrary to the seed of Adam. So, therefore, this seed would not, the seed that was promised, that would remedy the solution, would not come through Adam's seed because Adam was fallen and everyone that's born in Adam is guilty, is under condemnation. So, this would have to be a seed that came from the woman that was not part of Adam's lineage, not part of Adam's seed. Got that? So, Eve understood that, and she thought that her first righteous son would be that seed. So, you look over there in chapter 4 of Genesis. It says in verse 25, this is after Abel has been killed by Cain. And Adam, in verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring or another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to saith he, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, and you begin this godly line. So Eve was under the impression, I believe, that righteous Abel was the seed that was promised by God after the curse. Okay? So if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it makes clear that, that's, that, that Abel was counted as righteous. Because when you look at Hebrews 11, when you're talking about the heroes of the faith, or those that demonstrated true faith in God, the first one mentioned is Abel. In verse 4 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Okay, Abel was the righteous son of Eve. She thought he would be the one that was promised And when he was killed by Cain, she had another son named Seth to take the place of the righteous Abel, okay? Now, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the only one that could be the righteous seed. So you go to Hebrews chapter 12, and it talks in verse... uh, 22, it says, And you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous, of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So when he's talking about this new covenant here, he's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about a new covenant in reference to the sacrifices of Moses, he's talking about a new covenant in reference to the righteous Abel who was, who was sacrificed by Cain. I mean, yeah. So here he's, he's talking about this eternal covenant that began before the foundation of the world that was promised through Eve, and now it's going to be carried on until he calls out Abraham, and then he makes a promise to Abraham that he is going to have a son through whom the seed would come. So if you go to Galatians, chapter 4, we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but I want to go ahead and, while we're there, cover that. Galatians 3, I'm sorry. He says in verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So Christ is the seed that was promised in the garden that was also promised through Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, that was to be the one through whom the seed would come in which the whole world would be blessed. Right? Now, if you think about Abraham and Isaac and what happened to them, if you remember, uh, I forget the passage where... uh, Abraham took took Isaac up on the up on the mountain. Genesis twenty two. Okay. Genesis twenty two. Yes. When Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain, and we'll get to the Abraham covenant here in just a minute. In verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship, and we will return to you. Okay? Now, Abraham knows that God told him to kill Isaac. Right? And so then he goes through there, uh, and, he, and he is going to, he's ready to, to kill Isaac, but then something happens, and God stops him. Now, if you go to John chapter 8... When Jesus is recounting his relationship with Abraham, he speaks to the Pharisees. And he says in verse 56 of John chapter 8, he says, Your father rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, How You are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here he is claiming to be God. But he makes an interesting statement here. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Now, why would that be? What was the promise of God to Abraham? Through Isaac would come the seed, the promised seed the one that was going to deliver them from sin. If Isaac died, there would be no seed through Isaac, right? So if you go to Hebrews, and you look at the the account of Abraham's faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he whom, to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. I believe that God gave Abraham a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham knew that if Christ was going to be the descendant of Isaac... God would have to raise Isaac back from the dead after Abraham killed him. Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac back. He believed that God was, he, was going to, he was going to kill Isaac, that God was going to raise him back, and him and Isaac were going to go back down the mountain with his servants. He believed God enough to know that if he saw a vision of Jesus Christ, the seed that was going to come through Isaac, he would have to raise Isaac from the dead. And he believed God And God did raise Isaac back from the dead in a type by having a lamb take his place. Okay? So here you have the seed of the eternal covenant put into the Abrahamic covenant and flow out because through the Abrahamic covenant would become the Christ, the seed that was going to take care of the whole things. And so now we understand that all the promises made to Abraham are made, are fulfilled, and the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ. Any questions? Am I going too fast? Okay, go to Romans. Romans chapter 9. In the book of Romans, what you have is, in the first eight chapters of Romans, God has presented, through Paul, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, all the truths of the gospel. And he finishes up with this wonderful rendition in verse 35 uh, or verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as written, for thy sake we are all being put to death. We're being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That finishes his segment on the gospel, that God is faithful, and that God, nothing can separate God from the love he has for his people. So the question immediately rises: well, what about Israel? God cut them off. They were removed from his love. So Paul goes into chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans explaining that God has not cut off Israel, He is not finished with Israel, He will restore them and bring them back to a place that He has promised. He starts out by saying, I am telling the truth in verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and ceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed or separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever. Israelites, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth are these people that are ethnically God's people who belong, all the covenants belong to them, all the promises belong to them, it's through him, it's through them whom the seed eventually came. Okay? So that's what he's saying. So these are God's chosen people. Now, so let's go back and look at the Abrahamic covenant to begin with real quickly. So after the flood, after the flood, all the people were gathered together in one group. And they went to the Tower of Babel and Satan engineered a building of a Tower of Babel to elevate themselves above God or elevate him above God. And then out of that, God gave languages or separated the people by languages, confused them with all kinds of languages, and the people dispersed according to their own languages. So you had language groups, nations formed out of the Tower of Babel after the flood. And God gave, in the covenant of Noah's flood, he gave the right for governments to impose capital punishment. If you, before then, everybody did according to what he, what he thought, right in his own eyes. People murdered somebody whatever. They did whatever. But now you have human governments that are supposed to control that lawless activity of humans. And so, so he created nations. And then he called Abraham. He called Abraham, who was from the land of the Earl of the Chaldeans, which seems to be southeast of Babylon somewhat in that area. And Abraham's father took them to the area of Turkey, uh, the land of, uh, what's it called? Uh, Haran. And that's where Abraham was when God called him. Okay, and so God called him. And so he says... In, verse, in chapter 15, the first uh, mention of a promised Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is a Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given, me, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, "The man, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed God, and it was counted for him as righteousness. And then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So here is the first thing that he says, and then he defines the land in verse eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the river of the great river, the river Euphrates." Okay, so here he first mentions the the promise that he's going to enter into a special arrangement with Noah, with Abraham to call out him and make a great nation out of him and give them the land. Now, in chapter seventeen, he continues in this Abrahamic covenant. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, verses chapter 17, verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then he says in verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of multiple nations." a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Abraham never saw all the land of Canaan. But here the promise is, not only to his descendants, but to him. I will give to you and your descendants all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here is an everlasting, unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, he continues this as you read through. And this is extended also to Isaac. So in verse 19 of the same chapter, chapter 17, God said, when Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might be the seed, but God said in verse 19, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Okay? So here he continues the covenant with Isaac. And then... um, Genesis 28, Jacob he has a dream. You know, he's fled because he took this, stole the blessing from Esau, and he fled because he was afraid of Esau. And then uh, he had a dream. Um, in verse 12... And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set up on earth, on the earth with the, its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. And your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the, no- to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go to bring you back to this land, and will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. God is going to be faithful to what he promised, that Israel, including Abraham, will enjoy the land of Canaan. Now, after that, uh, we'll get back to the Mosaic Covenant in a minute, but we're talking about the extension of the Abrahamic Covenant and the Everlasting Covenant, which is, is carried on through... Uh, the Davidic covenant of, of uh, that was given to Dan, to David. So in Second Samuel, let's see, what chapter? Anybody know what chapter that was? The Davidic covenant was given to David. Chapter seven. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 11. No, chapter, 7. chapter 7 of Second Samuel, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, and he will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took away from Saul, whom I removed from you. You and, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. So he's talking about a descendant of, of, of David, uh, talking about his real descendants, but the ultimate descendant is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Jeremiah, he talks about the timing of the fulfillment of this promise to David in Jeremiah 33. In Jeremiah 33, verse 17, or verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on earth. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord of God, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so the day and night shall not be their appointed time, then then my covenant may also be broken with with David my servant that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So here he's talking about the assurance of David's covenant that David's son or David's ascendant is going to reign on David's throne. If you can stop the day and the night and you can stop the created world that God has created, then, he go, then you can stop the covenant of God to David. But if not, it's going to come true. Okay, it's that sure. Until you can stop the whole created work of God, that is the only way that, David's, that the covenant with David would not be assured and carried out at the time of the restoration of Israel. Now, the last word on that covenant was spoken to Mary in Luke chapter 1 when the angel appeared to her identifying which son of David would sit on this throne. So when the angel comes to Mary, to Mary in Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There is coming a kingdom in which the son of David is going to reign over the house of Israel in Jerusalem on David's throne, which is an earthly throne, and that kingdom is forever, which means that the millennial reign of Christ will be for a thousand years on this earth, and then the reign of Christ will be transferred to the new earth, and there will be the throne of Jesus Christ on David's throne that will be forever on the new earth, and Israel would be an entity before God, forever and ever, fulfilling the covenant promises to Abraham. Okay, so the Jews are God's covenant people. Okay? Now, let's talk about the Mosaic covenant. Okay, so what we had was God called a, a nation of, let me make sure, through Isaac and Jacob, and the sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. They went down into Egypt. Where God preserved them in the famine and brought forth out of them a nation of people, a throng of people, a multitude of Jews that were separate from from Egyptians they were not uh, they were, they were not commingled with egypt they were separate they were kept separate because the, the egypts funny the egypts looked at them as dirty. <laughs> They didn't want to have any part with these dirty shepherds. Uh, so the Jews were kept separate from the Egyptians. And, but God brought them out. And when he brought them out, then he instituted the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, Now the Mosaic Covenant had a purpose. It was always a temporary covenant. Okay? There was two aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. That was the law of God, the law for the nation. So the, the law... That God gave was the decrees or the laws that the nation was to live by. Just like we have laws in our country, this was a nation, it was a theocratic nation, and God instituted the law for the nation to observe. Okay, Now also included in the law was God's moral code, the Ten Commandments and God's moral code. But more than that, there was other restrictions upon the Jewish people, what they could and couldn't do, that are not part of God's moral code for everybody in the world. It was particularly for Israel. Okay, So you have God's moral law, then you have God's extended law or ceremonial law or other things that were just related to Israel. And when we look at what God gave through the law of Moses, what aspect does that have an impact on us? What, what part of that would we observe, and why would we observe it? The moral. moral. Okay, so the Ten Commandments are true for every generation. That's God's law, except for one. Which one is that? The Sabbath. Why was that not part of God's moral law? If you go to Exodus, and we're not going to do it today, but if you go to Exodus... And you read when God instituted the Sabbath. It wasn't instituted before Moses instituted it in Exodus. It was instituted because Israel was given the responsibility to be God's witness to the world. And so Israel was to be propped up as God's nation, and this nation served and worshipped the God of the creation. And so in six days, God created this world that we see, And on the seventh day, he rested. And so on the seventh day, which was a Saturday for the Jews, the seventh day, God rested. And so Israel was to rest, observing to the rest of the world that they worshiped the God of creation. Distinct from all the other nations of the world, they they alone observed and worshiped the God of creation. God didn't appear to any of the other nations. He didn't call out any of the other nations. He didn't give them any other revelation. He gave it to Israel. And Israel was to be the conduit in which God would bless the world. Okay? So the the Mosaic Covenant was given so that they would be a distinct nation to represent God. Now, so you had the, the, the law of Moses that was in part of the covenant, and then you had the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system dealt with the sins of the people. So if you violated the law of God that was given... You had to have a sacrificial system to cover that sin until the Messiah would come and take away the sin. That was always temporary. The Mosaic Covenant was always temporary, and it was always in lieu of the coming of the Messiah. So you get to the book of Hebrews, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord, but they're being told they have to go back and go under the Mosaic Covenant. And so you have to be careful that you don't misunderstand what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying. He is writing about a temporary covenant that was fulfilled with Jesus Christ. In verse 13 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, it says, and when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, uh, obsolete, and whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. The Mosaic covenant, it says in Galatians, was a tutor to show, to demonstrate to the people that righteousness could not be made or could not come about through the law or the keeping of the law. There always had to be a sacrifice for sin. There always had to be a, a remedy that would be eternal and that the law was to show them their need for a Savior, their need for a remedy that was permanent because they had to come back day after day, year after year and offer sacrifices for sin by killing another sacrifice. But God had prepared a one-time sacrifice to take away the sins forever, okay? So there's always going to be a second covenant. So what he says there in verse 7 of chapter 8, for if that first covenant had been faultless, now what covenant he's talking about? Not the Abraham covenant, the Mosaic covenant. If that first covenant had, had not been faultless or had been faultless, now what does it mean by faultless? Was there, did God make a mistake when he gave the covenant? No. It just means it couldn't perform what needed to be performed. The first covenant couldn't bring in righteousness. That's what Galatians is all about. He says, if the law could have brought in righteousness, there would have been no need for a sacrifice. The law could not do what needed to be done. It couldn't make anyone righteous. So, therefore, it's faultless. it has faults in that it couldn't perform what needed to be performed. So, he says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have not been the occasion for a second covenant. Now, we're going to talk about what the second covenant is. But if he's talking about a special people, who was the Mosaic covenant for? Israel. Exclusively Israel. God never... Impose the Mosaic Covenant on any other people, on any other person. You didn't have to observe the Mosaic Covenant to be with God. You had, to, you, had to, you had to worship the God of the Jews, but no other nation was called to be underneath God's Mosaic Covenant. Okay? So if the first covenant that he's referring to, the Mosaic Covenant, is for Israel alone, then who would the second covenant he's referring to here be for? Hmm? No. If the second is replacing the first, the second has to tie to the same people of the first. Right? Does that make sense? So what does he, what does he say? He, gives, he talks about this. He quotes from Isaiah, He quotes from Jeremiah. And he says, For if the first covenant had been flawless, there would have, not, have been no occasion sought for a second. But for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with With who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. So the second covenant is replacing the first covenant. The first covenant was with the house of Israel. The second covenant is also with the house of Israel. Okay? So let's go to Jeremiah and look at this new covenant. I want to begin, uh, because this is a continuation passage, Begin in chapter 30 of Jeremiah to set the context for what he's talking about and when he's talking about it. Chapter 30, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. And the Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land which I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now, uh, down to verse 22 of chapter 30. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed, and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So what he's saying is, that in the latter days, he's going to exact a judgment upon the land, upon the nations, upon the world. And through that distress of that judgment, which is called in the second half of the tribulation, the days of, of Jacob's trouble, it's when he's going to break the people and cause them to be under such persecution that they will cry out for the name of for the Lord to come and save them. And we'll talk about that when we get into uh, God's program for Israel in October 1. But right now, we're talking about the, the, this future covenant with Israel at the time it's going to be and for who it's going to be for. So here it says in chapter 31, at that, time, at that time, at the time of this judgment that's coming upon Israel to bring them to their knees is when I will be the God of Israel at that time. So then you go on down to Jeremiah 31, verse 1. It just says, I will be the God of them. And then you go on down to verse 27. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity, and each man who eats sour grapes with his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So when is that going to take place? Go to Romans again. Chapter 11. Remember Paul wrote in nine, chapters 9 through 11 to give an understanding that God is not finished with the Jews, but He has a plan for them. And So you get to the end of that chapter, chapter 11. Israel has been cut off. In verse 25 of Romans 11, it says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of Gentiles has come in, and then or thus, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them: when I take away their sins. So he's quoting from the passage of Jeremiah. I will take away their sins when I come for them, out of Zion. When is that? Revelation nineteen. There's a. There's one coming on a white horse. And on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming down to destroy the Antichrist and his armies and to rescue the remnant of Israel. And they will all be saved. And I will take away their sins. And I will enact that future covenant with Israel at that time. The new covenant is not a title for a specific covenant. It is not the new covenant. It is a, another covenant, a second covenant, a future covenant with Israel. You had the first covenant, now we have a future covenant. It's not the same thing as the eternal covenant of Jesus' blood. The the eternal covenant of Jesus' blood will be the basis for the future covenant because Jesus is going to take away their sins and they're not going to have to have sacrifice for sins in a sacrificial system anymore. They're going to be saved from their sins completely forever by the sacrifice of Jesus' sin. So the eternal covenant, which we all now have experienced because we've been saved from our sins, and everybody from Adam all the way to the last person in the earth will be saved from their sins by the eternal covenant. The Jews, the remnant that are saved at the end of the tribulation will be saved by the eternal covenant of Jesus' blood, and then he will enact the future covenant with them, which includes the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham, including the land and the kingdom and the nation with Jesus Christ being king over them in that day. So, to understand the events coming up in the second at advent of Christ or the second coming of Christ, you have to understand that God has a program for the church, God has a program for the nations, the Gentile nations that have overtrodden Israel, and God has a program to complete the purposes He has for Israel. And so, the events make sense only if you understand. God's purpose is unfolding by the entities that he's dealing with at his second coming. Okay? We're about out of time. Any questions about this? Now, next time we meet, there are, th- there are three untils that have to take place before the kingdom comes, okay? And each one refers to a, one of these segments of, of of, of the population that we're talking about. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching the sermon at Pentecost. He starts out by saying, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why do you gaze at this? As if by our own power or piety we had made him walk. He's talking about, well that was the second sermon, I'm sorry, go back to Men of Israel, listen to these words in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Jesus of Nazarene, a man tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up, and again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Now going down to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth... He has poured forth this which you both seen here, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord, my Lord, my descendant, my son, will sit, my Lord, he said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until, this is the first until. So where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where's David's throne? No, where's David's throne? That's not David's throne. David is not God's throne. David's not exalted to God's throne. David's throne is in Jerusalem. He's king of the Jews. It's an earthly kingdom. So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Until the time to completely judge the Gentile nations with the Antichrist being the last leader of the Gentile nations, until that time. God, Jesus Christ, is going to stay at the right hand of the Father until that happens. So the, the kingdom age will not begin until the Gentiles are judged. All right, the next, the next until is in Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel that has rejected him after he has excoriated the, the Pharisees, and preached all those woes upon them and their theology and their their leading the, the nation astray. He says, in verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messianic kingdom will not take place until the Jews come to a place of repentance as a nation and cry out for Jesus to save them. Now, in Zechariah 13, it makes it clear that of those that begin the time of tribulation and judgment of the seven years of the the 70th week of Daniel... A third of them will survive and be a part of this remnant that believes in Jesus Christ and calls upon him as their Lord and Savior. Two-thirds will die during the tribulation. Okay? But Jesus will not come back to set up his kingdom until the Jews acknowledge him as their Messiah. Okay? Now, that takes care of the nations. The He's not coming back until the nations are made enemies or made a footstool of his feet, which means he's going to destroy the seed in the garden. Remember the seed of the serpent is the last ruler of the the serpent's kingdom, which is the Antichrist. Jesus is coming back to crush the Antichrist. That is the last leader of the Gentile nations that trodden down Jerusalem. He's not going to do that until the Jews call upon him. And when the Jews call upon him, he's coming to crush the nations. And then the, the kingdom will be set up. But before all that, Go back to Romans, again, chapter 11. Before all that, you have this program for the church. Because the natural branches of Israel was cut off from the rich root of the olive tree. Now, the rich root of the olive tree, and this is where some of the confusion gets brought in, the rich root of the olive tree can refer to, two, to three things. The rich root of the olive tree can refer to eternal life, which if you're cut off, that means you had eternal life, but you lost it, which is unbiblical, okay? The rich root of the olive tree can refer to the Abrahamic covenant and the blessings that flow out of that, which the church was supposedly grafted into. Or you can understand that the rich root of the olive tree is the message or the truth that leads to eternal life. So I believe that the Jews were given the privilege and the responsibility of declaring the truth that leads to eternal life as God's messengers on earth, and then when they rejected the Messiah, the one they were supposed to be pointing to, they rejected the Messiah, and they were cut off, and the Gentile branches, the wild branches were grafted in, and then they will be cut off. So again, it's not talking about losing salvation, it's talking about losing the responsibility and privilege of being God's witnesses on earth. So, After the Jews were cut off, it says that the Gentiles were cut in. So the church became God's witnesses on earth from the time that Israel rejected Christ at Pentecost, was what officially started, until the church is complete. All right? So in chapter 11 of Romans, verse 25, it says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to the exact number that is part of the elect bride of Christ. So from Pentecost until this event of the rapture of the church, there is a set number that is chosen of God, a certain elect group that is part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. And when the fullness of that has come in, or when the exact number of those elect for the bride of Christ has come in, then God will come and take his bride back to heaven And then he will turn his attention back to Israel. And when we get into that passage, I want you to understand that when you get into the book of Revelation and it says that he calls out 144,000 Jews to be his witnesses on earth, it is to replace the church that left the earth. If If the church was still here during the tribulation, the church would be his witnesses continuing the work that they were called to do. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then God will begin to rebring in Israel. And he'll start with calling out 144,000 Jews, which are the first fruits of the remnant of Israel that go into the kingdom age. Okay? So until the Jews acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and repent of their sin, which is the passages in Hosea chapter 5 and 6, Until God destroys the Gentile nations, He will not set up His kingdom. But until the church is raptured, He will not graft back in Jerusalem or Israel to the place of His witnesses. He first starts with with the grafting in of the hundred forty four thousand, because they become His witnesses. If the church was His witnesses, is, is His witnesses now? The church is removed, and the Christendom. The false church, or the church that's left behind that's not true, they're going to be cut off, just like the Jews that rejected Jesus was cut off. The church that rejected Jesus is cut off, and they join the Antichrist religious system of the tribulation, and then the 144,000 are grafted back in to begin that God's dealing again with the nation of Israel to bring about his kingdom.